Mick Sullivan of The Past and the Curious has a new book available. That's me. I See Lincoln's Underpants is a book about famous people and their underwear. 16 chapters on 16 people and their undies and lots of other stuff too, like the Underwear Hall of Fame. Lots of laughing, lots of learning. It's available wherever you get your books. And if you wind up with a copy, please leave a review. Be sure to request it at your local library too. That will help. This is an indie effort. I am an indie operation. Thank you. everyone, and welcome to episode 75 of The Past and the Curious. 75! That is amazing to me. So today, I have two new stories that are both about underwear, but they are not in the book and not available anywhere else. So this is a The Past and the Curious podcast exclusive. If you're finding the podcast because of Icy Lincoln's underpants, welcome. And if you're an old friend, great to have you back. Welcome. All right. So uh, one of these stories is actually mentioned briefly in the book, but not in this much detail. So we're gonna go deep. And that is the story of an underwear company making the moon spacesuit. And I'm pretty sure you're gonna like it. It's really fun. Also, we've got a story about the most notorious traitor in American history, Benedict Arnold, who was brought down by something hidden in someone else's underwear. So let's get ready to party like it's 1776. And then we'll do it all again and party like it's 1969. All right, let's go. George Washington once called West Point the most important post in America. Today, it is home to the United States Military Academy, which was attended by such notable people as Ulysses S. Grant, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and believe it or not, Edgar Allan Poe. But before all of that, West Point was a fort held by Americans during the Revolutionary War. On the Hudson River, 60 miles from New York City, it was a crucial and strategic place to maintain control of much of the continent. This is why the British wanted it, and why a man who was once an American hero was tempted to give it to them. That man became so loathed that his name became a term for traitors everywhere. His name was Benedict Arnold, and let's just say that things didn't work out the way that he hoped they would. A letter in someone's underwear would lead to his downfall, his disgrace, and ultimately an afterlife spent buried in the wall of a kindergarten classroom in England, which is where he still is today, 220-something years after he passed away. Benedict Arnold was born in Connecticut in 1741. Due to strife and struggles, the Arnold family's once modest fortunes dwindled, and young Benedict was not able to pursue the education that had once been planned for his future. At 16, he served for a very short time in the Connecticut militia during the French and Indian War. He also apprenticed as a pharmacist, and as a young man, he did quite well in New Haven, operating his own pharmacy and bookshop. However, the taxes the British placed on their American subjects to pay for the war debts from the same French and Indian War began to eat into his profits. In particular, the Stamp Act, which added a tax to everything from newspapers and magazines to playing cards and legal documents, hurt his business, and it pinched his pocketbook pretty hard. 
So he began to agree with the growing voices for rebellion. The then American colonists revolted, and eventually George Washington was named general of the new Continental Army. Benedict signed on to serve with the Connecticut militia and was elected to be a captain. In the years that followed, he grew to be a hero in the American army and was given greater and greater responsibility. He was part of the capture of Fort Ticonderoga, which, as you might recall from a previous episode, is from where Henry Knox trudged all of those super heavy cannons that the Americans used to surprise and chase the British army out of Boston. Today, in Saratoga, New York, there is a monument to Benedict Arnold's foot. It's the only monument he'd get in America. And even still, it doesn't actually say his name. That's how bad of a guy he became to most Americans. Someone wanted to honor his pre-traitorous times in service to the United States, but they didn't want to give the guy too much credit. So they settled on honoring his injured foot. It's called the Boot Monument which is kind of ironic because it was another boot that would eventually expose him and bring him down. After that injury to his foot in Saratoga, he had to recuperate for a while. And sometimes being alone with one's thoughts while feeling extra sorry for oneself can be a bad thing. Perhaps this is when things began to go sour for old Benny. Like others, looking at you, Charles Lee, he began to think that he was being disrespected by the American army and the Continental Congress. He also happened to fall in love with a woman who came from a family of staunch loyalists. They supported Great Britain and King George III. So when they married, it's likely the family's feelings rubbed off on him. But he also wanted to matter above anything else. And he began to think about how he could make a mark on the world. Maybe bringing an end to the American Revolution would be just the ticket. When his foot injury healed up well enough, he returned to duty for the Americans. But there was a giant, invisible chip on his shoulder. Unaware of his true feelings, George Washington believed old Benny was talented and trustworthy, so he put Benedict in charge of West Point. Remember, the same fort that he once called the most important post in America. Everyone makes mistakes. What Washington didn't know was that Arnold was communicating with the British Army. It was his plan to turn on the American Army, and in a very dramatic way. He'd keep the fort understaffed on purpose, not take care of updates and repairs that the fort desperately needed, and when the time was right, Benedict would simply give the fort and all of its unwitting soldiers over to the British Army. In return, Arnold would receive a big stack of money and a better post as an officer in the British Army. He was planning to play Washington for a fool. It was a delicate operation. Treachery is not simple business. Arnold communicated with a British spy named John Andre, who was working as a middleman for the British bosses in charge. In September of 1780, George Washington was planning to be at West Point to inspect the improvements he thought that Arnold was working on. Just before George was set to arrive, Benedict Arnold and John Andre met in the moonlight on the banks of the Hudson River. There, they discussed the plan to take West Point, and Arnold gave Andre several documents, including a top-secret map of the fort, which would come in handy when the British came to take it, 
as well as details about the arrangement that would see Arnold becoming an officer in the British Army. With the goal of keeping the document secret and safe, John Andre took off his boot, and he stuck the papers in the legs of his stockings and set off for New York City. It was a journey that he would make overland, and largely at night. He was, after all, a British officer, in addition to being a spy. He might find loyalists who would help him, but he was also likely to find American patriots who would not be as helpful. One document he did not hide in his boot, though, was a pass, written from Benedict Arnold, saying that he, under the fake name of John Anderson, was on business for the American general and should be allowed to travel without interruption. Both men knew that if he moved quickly, the British might just catch George Washington at the fort when they came to seize it, and that certainly would have ended the war very quickly. Spoiler alert, they didn't get the fort, nor did they get George. Andre made it pretty far, and the pass, as well as his acting chops, actually worked once when stopped along the path. But not far from New York City, he was commanded to halt by a man in the darkness. This man was wearing a blue jacket, the same blue jacket worn by Hessian soldiers, who were German fighters that the British had hired to fight alongside them against the Americans. Appearing in the darkness behind this man were two more men. This was a good thing in Andre's mind. Maybe they could help him get the rest of the way to deliver the spy documents to British generals. My lads, he said, I hope you belong to our party. What party? asked the man in the blue coat. When Andre replied that he meant the British party, the man replied, We do. My dress shows that. Andre then replied with something along the lines of, Splendid. I am a British officer with a lot to do and not much time to do it. <laughs> Psych! We're actually Americans. Totally had you going, didn't we? No. <laughs> oh, did I, did I say British officer? I meant, uh, I'm totally American. Like, the most American. Like, Kentucky Fried Chicken and Apple Pie. I am so super American. D do you want to play some baseball? Yeah, right, dude. Get over here. Then the three men pulled him into the darkness, took off his outer clothes, and searched him up and down. But they found nothing. What about his boots? Yeah, let's pull those puppies off and have a peek. Still, they found nothing. Nearly ready to give in, one man noticed... A little sag in Andre's newly exposed stockings. And in that saggy stocking, he soon found the secret stash. The one man amongst them who could read perused the documents quickly. Oh, oh man, this is bad. I mean, it's good that we caught you. But this looks really bad for you. Two days later, Benedict Arnold found out that Andre had been captured and that the papers had been confiscated. He knew he was doomed. He also knew George Washington was literally on the way to his house at that very moment. And as soon as he received his messages, George would know as well. So Benedict ran as fast as he could to get to the British lines. 30 minutes after the turncoat tore off into the New York countryside, Washington arrived at Benedict Arnold's house. And when Washington saw the documents, he exclaimed, who can we trust now? It was the greatest act of treason in the Revolutionary War. And as word spread, the American army began searching for the traitorous former hero high and low. They'd never get him. But Arnold never got what he wanted either. The plan didn't work out, so he got paid, but not as much as was originally agreed upon. 
He also got command and actually fought against the Americans later in the war. But it turns out that no one really likes traitors, even the people you did it for. It's hard to trust someone like that, and Benedict learned that lesson the hard way. He never found the glory or respect he wanted so desperately. He died at the age of 60 and is buried in London. The crypt is in the basement of St. Mary's Church, Battersea. The church is still an active site in the neighborhood, and in the basement today is where a kindergarten class spends their days learning and playing. A few curious and history-minded visitors have requested to see the crypt, at times when the room is empty and not being used by kindergartners. They reported seeing a stone marker on the wall surrounded by a fish tank and math posters and shelves with crayons and markers. But behind the wall are the final remains of a man who has gone down as one of the biggest traitors in history and whose plan just might have worked if those men on the road that night hadn't bothered to check the legs of John Andre's underwear. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. This month's You Have 30 Seconds comes from Jack, who has a really interesting and fascinating fact that I did not know. Hi, my name is Jack Barbie and I am nine years old from Decatur, Georgia. I wanted to talk about the Titanic. While the Titanic's designer, Thomas Andrews Jr. claimed the ship was unsinkable, the White Star Line's builders never made such a claim. Ironically, Thomas Andrews Jr. died in the sinking of the Titanic on April 15th, 1912, along with over 1,500 men, women, and children. Thank you so much for sharing, Jack. I thought this was really timely because my kids are super obsessed with the Titanic right now, like really, really interested because it's always so fascinating to so many people. And I appreciate that. That was great. If anyone else out there has a You Have 30 Seconds and would like to share it with the world, then all you got to do is record it with voice memos on a phone or something like that and email it to me at hello at thepastandthecurious.com. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. 
It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. And just as we always do, we have arrived at quiz time. All of the questions from quiz time actually are from the book, I See Lincoln's Underpants. So if you've read the book, then you know the answers. If you don't, it'll give you a taste of some other stories. Question number one. It is rumored that King Charlemagne, one of the most important kings of all time, is buried in itchy underwear. What are his underclothes supposedly made of? Ew, it's hair. Like animal hair. Like super itchy animal hair. Animal hair underclothes were common in the Middle Ages as a way to remind people to be humble or repent for their sins. And it seems that Charlemagne wanted to stay humble in his afterlife. Question number two. In the 1956 Olympic opening ceremony, someone fooled the crowd and the mayor of Sydney, Australia with a fake Olympic torch. Speeches began when the torch arrived, but the real one was still on the way. The imposter torch was made out of what? Well, yes, as you might guess, it was made out of underwear, but not just underwear, table leg and underwear. And not just any underwear, flaming underwear. It was lit on fire. It was actually a college student who pulled the prank because he didn't like that the torch ceremony had actually begun when Nazi Germany hosted the Olympics in 1930. So this was his way to protest and probably also have a laugh. Okay, question number three. Guglielmo Marconi is remembered as the father of radio communication which meant a lot of travel across the Atlantic Ocean for him. He had a lot of work to do back and forth. Once, his wife walked into their room aboard a ship and found him throwing what out of his window, out of the porthole? What was he throwing out? Well, yeah, it was his underwear. Out the porthole, Guglielmo was throwing out his dirty undies. He was a busy man and he felt like he didn't have enough time to launder them. So he thought he'd just throw them out and keep buying new ones. It was not very eco-conscious, Mr. Marconi. Hello, families of the 1930s. I'm Abram Spinell, and you may know me from my smash hit invention, the moth-proof vacuum airable storage bag for your clothes. I made a lot of money with that one, but that's not why I'm here today. Folks, has this ever happened to you? Your baby. Is just sitting there in the cloth diaper and they go pee you know as babies do maybe it's a lot of liquid or maybe you're just a few minutes late to the leak anyway the next thing you know you've got a puddle of pee on the rug or a yellow stain on the sofa and nobody wants that so your pal abe has got a solution for you i call him Baby's Rubber Baby Bottom Buffers. Baby's Rubber Baby Bottom Buffers. Is, is that too much? Uh, okay, maybe that name doesn't work. I could just call them Playtex Diaper Covers. Eh, we'll see. Abram Spinell was born in 1901 in Odessa, a Ukrainian city which at the time was part of Russia. 
There was a large population of his family's fellow Jewish people there, but persecution and unjust racism was a growing problem. To get away from it, his family first moved to Paris before ultimately settling in Rochester, New York, when he was around 10. A few years later, he attended three years of college until he hit on his first invention, a moth-proof clothing bag. It did well, but that was just the beginning. By the time he died, he would have 2,000 patents to his name. Most interesting to him was latex, a natural rubber that is made from the sticky secretions of certain plants. Abram had great ideas for the stretchy, waterproof, shape-retaining material, and eventually started the ILC, or the International Latex Corporation, which was a big name for a small little company of just a few employees. They made those diaper covers to go over cloth diapers. You mean AB's rubber baby bottom buffers? Uh, yeah. But they made a lot more after that. Over time, the company grew, and they even earned a few government contracts during World War II. After they changed their name to Playtex, the company made history when they broadcast the very first underwear commercials on those new televisions that were popping up in the homes of Americans. As you might imagine, from that point on, they were mostly known as an underwear company. And they created all sorts of undergarments, mostly for women of the time. As business grew, they assembled a team of seamstresses whose expertise was unrivaled. A few of these women could stitch and sew anything that anyone could imagine. Which is why Abe and the company sat up and took notice when NASA said that they were having an open competition to see who could make the best spacesuit. NASA was in need of something that had never existed before. The Apollo program was planning to get to the moon. And that was a huge deal, and among other things, it was going to take one heck of a suit. Now, you could argue that other needs were more important, like calculating how to get to the moon in orbit in the first place, or building a ship and lunar lander, or getting astronauts trained for the wildly dangerous mission. But none of those things would have mattered if as soon as the door opened to the moon's surface, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were immediately destroyed by the inhospitable environment. As you might recall from the Buzz Aldrin episode, that's how you get space mummies. Oh, and you want to talk about inhospitable? The astronauts were going to be exposed to a mind-blowing temperature swing of up to 500 degrees Fahrenheit. Depending on where one finds themselves on the moon, the dark of shadow can bring temperatures colder than 250 degrees below zero. In a matter of hours, the temperature can skyrocket to 250 degrees above zero in the light of the sun. This is not something that normal clothes will help you with, but it gets worse. They'd also be exposed to constant solar radiation, as well as countless teeny tiny micro meteoroids whizzing about. These little stony bits fly faster than a bullet and could easily put a hole in that suit, and this would bring a quick end to any moonwalker. This is how we get space mummies. Oh, the suit also has to stay pressurized and keep oxygen flowing for the body inside to keep working too. But that's not all. There was also work to do. So on top of staying alive, an astronaut also had to move around and see things and be able to use tools. This was a tall order 
that NASA was in search of. And they knew it, so they put out a call to companies and challenged them to figure it out. Winner takes all, or so Playtex thought. Going up against companies who already had NASA contracts, even ones that had made spacesuits already, was a bold move. They'd be the underdogs, but the women at Playtex were the best in the biz. And ultimately, their design was deemed the best. But since Playtex hadn't made a spacesuit that had been sent to space before, and one of the losing companies had, NASA asked both companies to work together. This did not work out. Too many cooks in the kitchen, as they say. So NASA went back to the drawing board and started another competition. And they did not invite the little underwear company that could. But this didn't stop Abe's team. Playtex representatives marched on down to Dallas and gave NASA a piece of their mind. Was NASA right in believing Playtex, the underwear company, couldn't make the best and most advanced spacesuit known to humankind? Well, they were worse than right. They were wrong. Playtex proved it. After convincing NASA to give them another shot, they once again made the best spacesuit prototype. To drive the point home, while running tests, one of the other suits actually inflated like a balloon under pressure and couldn't fit through the simulated lunar lander door. Oh no, we just have to leave him on the moon. Sounds like a space mummy to me. And another suit had the head-covering helmet just blow right off. Kapow! Oof, now that is how you get space mummies. But the Playtex suit had none of these issues. It was stable, strong, didn't balloon up, and it was incredibly easy to move in. Turns out making 1950s era women's underwear gave the team a real leg up on the competition. But that was just a prototype, and these tests were obviously run down here on Earth. The moon would be another story entirely, and the suit had to be just right. So it took the Playtex team years of painstaking work to create suits that would surround the astronauts on the first moonwalk. One of the women responsible for the suit was Jean Wilson. She was 19 years old and had sewn her first button at the age of seven and then quickly started making clothes for the dolls in her house. Before taking the job with Playtex, she had worked in a factory sewing suitcases. And for that job, she had to work as fast as possible. For this job, however, it was crucial that she moved slowly and carefully and diligently. With a ruler and her needles and thread, she carefully, painstakingly, made every stitch perfect. If one stitch was 1 32nd of an inch out of place, which was practically the thickness of her needle, it could cause a disaster down the line. And that's how you get space mummies. In the end, there were 21 layers of different materials sewn together for extreme temperatures, radiation, micrometeoroid assaults, and of course, ease of movement. Some of the materials used were so valuable and so new that they would have to be locked away in a safe at the end of each workday. But of course, some of the other materials used were the same ones used in underwear creations and in the creation of Abe's rubber baby bottom buffers. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. When the big moment came and Neil Armstrong stepped out of the door of the lunar lander to become the first human being to set foot on the moon, 
people all over the world were watching thanks to some incredible technology that allowed it to be broadcast on television. Surely, a lot of people were nervous, but perhaps none more so than Jean and her fellow seamstresses who sewed that suit that was protecting Neil. If something went wrong, the world would collectively see a gruesome space mummy-making moment. But as we know, that was not the case. The Playtex team and everyone else breathed a sigh of relief. About the marvelous suit, Neil Armstrong said, its true beauty was that it worked. It was tough, reliable, and almost cuddly. That cuddly part filled the team that created it with the most pride. Their design has impacted every spacesuit that has made it to space since that moment, which is pretty wild because once upon a time, those same hands made underwear for everyday people. Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. It was certainly a lot of fun for me to put together. Um, I have a couple announcements. First off, uh, Meat Shower Day is right around the corner, and I know you're making plans, so let's talk about that. Uh, It's March 3rd, which is a Friday. I have something to do in the morning that's kind of tying me. So, uh, Friday evening, I'm going to schedule a YouTube Live. It'll be Eastern Time. I think it'll probably be 6 or 7. I'm not totally sure yet, but keep it. I'll, I'll make an announcement in February, too, um, and on all of the social media platforms. Um, but I'm also going to do one on Saturday the 4th. And not only will we read the meat shower, I'll also do a little bit of stuff from Icy Lincoln's Underpants. And actually, there's really interesting meat news that has entered the world uh, related to the meat shower. And uh, I'm eager to share that with you so you might want to tune in for that i'll probably bring it into an episode later but if you want a sneak peek of that um try to tune in on march 3rd or march 4th okay um also if you happen to be in louisville um on february 11th and february 12th which is abraham lincoln's birthday um, I will be at Logan Street Market with because uh, there's like a fair, so I'll be at a table with Suki and another friend, Amber, and we'll uh, I'll have the books there and I'll be hanging out if you want to stop by and say hey. Okay, uh, I have a few Patreon people to thank as well. First off, Beatrice and Agnes from Seattle. Beatrice and Agnes, hello to you. I'm so glad you're out there listening to the show. I hope that you enjoy this and every episode. I'm so glad. Uh, Oh, yeah. And from the silver city of St. Paul, Dash Larson. Hello, Dash. I heard that you had a birthday um, back at the beginning of January. So I wish you a late happy birthday. And speaking of birthdays, there's one more. Lakin Morrow turning nine in the days ahead. Lakin, happy birthday to you. I wish you the best. That goes for everybody. Lakin and Dash and Beatrice and Agnes. And to every one of you listening, thank you for listening. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious. And there's more where this came from. Just be patient. Oh, yeah. And if you bought the book or whatever, uh, reviews, reviews, reviews. Reviews help so much. If you can leave a review on a platform where you got the book or this is big too. If you can request it at your local library or through your local bookstore or something like that, because this is a pretty small indie effort and uh, you all are really all I got, you know? So I appreciate it. I really appreciate anything anyone can do. Leave me a review. 
and uh, we're not it's cool just keep listening to the show that's that's the most important thing so you know what you do you love y'all bye